miss as they are customarily at this time. Be going up to the youth room to have their study. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse by verse study in Miss as they are Miss as they are in chapter 10. If you turn to the back, Miss as they are right before the epistle of James, you have the book of Hebrews. So, chapter 10, we covered the first 25 verses of Hebrews. And again, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you're towards the back, we'll hand you a Bible. If you're towards the front, there's some on the front platform. We want you to read God's word with us. And we want you to study God's word with us. And uh, so we're going to open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And it's been an incredible study so far. So now if you've been with us in our study of the book of Hebrews, um, you know that, or maybe perhaps you've done your own study in this epistle, there's a lot of references to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, and the, the law, the, the priests, their roles, their duties, uh, their service there in the tabernacle, a lot of references to the earthly tabernacle that was out there in the wilderness, the furnishings that were there, uh, all these things that uh, are told to us, references to the sacrifices that are told to us in the book of Leviticus. And the reason is, is because the initial reader of this epistle, this epistle, we don't know who the human instrument was to write these words. It probably was Paul the Apostle, but we can't say with certainty. We know the ultimate author, of course, is the Holy Spirit, but written probably right before the Second Temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so around 63, 64 A.D., about 30 years after Jesus was crucified, this epistle is written to them. And, of course, the initial reader, uh, having that Jewish background had a knowledge of all the Old Testament sacrifices and the priestly services. They were students of the law. They esteemed the angelic creatures who were uh, used even as chapter 2 declares to us. They would bring the steadfast word. And we know that they would esteem and hold up the, the priests and the prophets and uh, the kings such as David and Solomon and the others, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was so much history that was very much a part of their lives. They would think about the feast that they celebrated. There was the Sabbath observance. There were all these things that uh, were a part of the covenant that God had made with his people. And so now, as we know, as I mentioned to you, 30 years before this epistle was penned, this one, this itinerant preacher called Jesus of Nazareth, that he came on the scene. It was told that he was born of a virgin. He ministered with great power in bringing healings of every kind of sickness and disease. He opened the eyes of the blind. He gave uh, hearing to the deaf. He would cleanse the lepers. Uh, he would uh, heal the lame. He, he healed every kind of disease and sickness there was. And some of those people, no doubt, that received the miraculous healing by Jesus, physical healing, was probably still around when this epistle was penned. But he also not only healed physically in great power, but he taught with great power. In other words, we are told that he taught with great authority. He made claims that the Father and I are one. He would declare that I am the bread of life, that I am the resurrection and the life, even as he raised the dead. He would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he ended up dying a criminal's death on a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But he rose again. And then there was the claims of those who, who said that they saw the resurrected Lord. Even Paul the Apostle 
wrote to the Corinthian church that there's 500 brethren that saw him at one time. There was no doubt all the witnesses. And this Paul the apostle who was at one time was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he was so zealous for his uh, religion, for Judaism, for the law, for the old covenant. He had lived for it. Uh, he was one that practiced it. He was blameless concerning the laws, what he writes to the Philippian church. But he met the Lord on the way to Damascus. And all of a sudden, he becomes a proclaimer of this resurrected Jesus. And he's saying to them and to all that he had an opportunity to minister to, Paul, of course, was the apostle to the Gentiles, but also had a heart for his brethren. He says, you don't look to the law. You don't look to those sacrifices to save you, but you look to him. You look to Jesus. And he is the one that came. He's the anointed one that the Old Testament spoke of, the Mashiach, the Messiah spoken of, the one that you have been expecting and waiting for. And for the most part, the people of Israel had rejected him. He didn't bring in the kingdom. He didn't overthrow Rome. So could it be that he was the one that truly come that we've been waiting for? What did his death accomplish? Do you really put away the law? And now come to salvation by means of grace through faith in him. And those are some of the things that they're wrestling with. And all these things would be going through their minds. And even those who had come to the decision that Jesus was the Messiah, there was a tremendous pull for them and temptation for them to go back to be associated with all those things that pertain to the old covenant, to go back to the law, to go back to the sacrifices, to go back to the temple worship and to the feasts and the rituals and all of that. So that's why this epistle is written and that's why this epistle is considered to be so theological and technical because the writer who was a scholar of the Old Testament inspired by God is very brilliantly and very carefully painstakingly is showing them and us as well that this one that did come on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is truly the Son of God and that he's superior to any other person that came on the scene, such as Moses, the, the one who brought the law, who represents the law. He was greater than any prophet that came on the scene. That would include Elijah, who represents the prophets. Greater than the patriarch Abraham. Matter of fact, in John's gospel, you see that the Pharisees were disputing with Jesus. And they were boasting that they were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, what do you mean Abraham rejoices to see your day? You're not but 50 years old. Are you saying that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus made that great declaration that before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up rocks to stone him because they knew exactly what it was that he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. They knew of the story of Moses there at the burning bush. And as Moses there is on holy ground and he's talking with God, he asks God, what is your name that I may tell, you know, your people your name? And God answered, I am that I am. You tell them that I am has sent you. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene saying that the Father and I are one. And I am that declaration of deity. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life that comes from heaven. Believe in me and you'll never die that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And before Abraham was, I am. And so here is the one claiming to be greater and claiming to be the creator and to be eternal. 
And what this epistle has been doing is showing us that indeed that Jesus, that he is our high priest. He's our perfect high priest. He's our compassionate high priest. He's our sympathetic high priest. He is greater than Aaron or any high priest that came on the scene. He, he ministers from a superior priesthood, and that's what we have seen that shown to us in the beginning of chapter 7, that, that Jesus, his priesthood, it was a priesthood forever after the order of Melchizedek. He brings a more excellent ministry. Why? Because his priesthood is superior. Because his sacrifice, which was himself, was superior enough to bring forgiveness of sin. The animal sacrifices couldn't do that. It couldn't complete that forgiveness of sin. Jesus did as he cried from the cross, it is finished. And he died once and for all and now sits at the right hand of the Father as he resurrected from the grave. We know that he ministered in a superior sanctuary. Oh, not the earthly sanctuary out there in the wilderness, but the heavenly sanctuary. And that who he is, the great high priest, his sacrifice, his ministry, he has better promise and a better covenant. It is sufficient for your forgiveness and salvation. You see, the old covenant sacrifices couldn't do that. The priest could not provide a right standing for anyone before God. Only what Jesus Christ has done for us brings us into the presence of the Lord. So this doctrinal truth that was laid out so wonderfully, and they would come to understand that my salvation and my forgiveness of sin cannot come by the old covenant, the old animal sacrifices. It doesn't come by the law. It comes by Jesus alone, who died for me once and for all. And we have seen that has been repeated again in this chapter that Jesus now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And with that doctrinal truth laid out very carefully, here's what it means for you and for me as the writer begins to sum all that out in those 10 chapters up to verse 19 of chapter 10, that what it means that you and I now can come boldly or with confidence into the Holy of Holies. And as most of you know, the Holy of Holies was where the tangible presence of God was. You can now come to the throne of grace, to the tangible presence of God, to his presence with confidence and boldness, not your own confidence, not your own boldness, but by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And that would be a marvelous truth for them. They would be at awe in reading that, and you and I should be as well, because even as they would think, wow, only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year for a short time, that you and I now as we have the spirit of adoption, that we cry out, Abba, Father, Galatians and Romans tells us, Papa, that we can go into his presence any time we want, many times as we want, stay as long as we want on any day that we want. So I pray that we would take the opportunity to really know and understand and, and take advantage of what we have that's been given to us through Jesus. And that's what he begins to say as we finished last week. What does it mean that we can come into his presence because of, of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us? Well, verse 22, let us draw near to God. And then secondly, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And I pray that we all have just that wonderful confidence that our Lord is able to save to the uttermost, able to forgive, and able to us to be able to walk in that newness of life. And then the third let us, as we finished last week in verses 24 and 25, that let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. There are some of them that were isolating themselves. Don't do that. 
especially as you see the day approaching what day? Well, if you've been with us in our Isaiah study, we know that that is a term for the day of the Lord, when there's going to be judgment and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing that day approaching uh, in this generation. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but we are getting closer. We can be discerning in the times and seasons that we are in. So don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. We need to encourage each other, stir one another up in love and good works. So all these things that we discussed in our last study, and we've looked at these wonderful truths in the book of Hebrews, as we are told to draw near to God and we can come into his presence because of what Jesus Christ has done, there's also been warnings that have been given to us. I think that today that many Christians don't want to be warned. There are many pastors behind the pulpit that don't want to warn their people. It's like Ezekiel in the Old Testament, that Ezekiel likens us and to be like watchmen on the wall. The ancient cities had uh, those who would look out, the watchmen, and if there was danger, uh, they would blow the trumpet, they would warn the people. And as we go through the counsel of God's word, there are warnings given to us all throughout the scripture, and you and I are to be like watchmen. I'm to be like a watchman to blow the trumpet and give those warnings that are given to us in God's word. To warn us that there's consequences of rejecting Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews certainly does just that. You recall in chapter 2, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That there is eternal judgment for those who do reject this wonderful gospel declared to us. And in chapter 3, verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. In chapter 4, talking about the rest that the children of Israel did not enter into, let us be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Chapter 5, the warning of dullness of hearing and spiritual immaturity that was addressed. And then chapter 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. So all these things we discuss if we journey through this epistle. And now as we finish chapter 10 this morning, after this wonderful truth given to us of the sufferings of Christ, the death on the cross for forgiveness, that we can come into his presence, there's this warning given to us once again. So let's pick up our text here in Hebrews chapter Chapter 10, as we begin to read in verse 26, that we read, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Keep in mind, as we've talked about the flow of what this epistle is telling us, it has been declared to us that the old covenant, the law, the animal sacrifices could not bring perfection to the people of God. Couldn't even bring the people into the presence of the Lord. It is only Jesus' sacrifice which brings a removal and remission of sin. And he is our mediator that brings us to the Father. You see, it's been very carefully presented to us. And if you or anyone willfully, as we read there in verse 26, reject that truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If you Hebrew believers go back to trusting in those animal sacrifices for forgiveness, know that you are rejecting the truth of Christ's death for sin, and there is no other sacrifice for sin that is available. There's no other way to the Father. There's no other way to God. If Christ's death was not adequate 
adequate, adequate 2,000 years ago, then nothing is adequate. God is not going to do something else. Christ isn't going to die again. It's been repeated. He did it once and for all. And this is willfully rejecting Jesus and what he has done for you and provided for you. You see, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he would say, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, and I believe that we are in the latter times, that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Some of the last words of Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that we have in the New Testament, for the time will come, not that it might come, but it's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up from themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I believe that we're seeing that more and more today in the world in which we're living in. We see in the church today, not those who say, I need to go back to the animal sacrifices of the old covenant, but those who have known and heard the truth and then with deception and false teaching are denying who Jesus really is, the deity of Jesus, that he is the Savior of the world. We know that to be true. They begin to believe that, oh, as some teach in the church, and I mean the church at large, that there are those behind the pulpit saying, well, as long as you're sincere, you know, God loves you. You're okay. There are other ways to heaven. We don't want to say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. We don't want to say that no one comes to the Father except through him. We don't want to be exclusive. We don't want to be intolerable. We can't do that. We want to tell people they can live in their sin. And there is a falling away from the truth. And that's why the book of Hebrews is so very important. The message that is given to us, truth that is given to us, and to reject the truth of Jesus, this one who rejects it willfully and presumptuously and defiantly, they are apostate. They have fallen away. That's what the word means in the Greek. They fall away. There's no other means to save you, and judgment does follow if you remain there. In verse 28, as we continue reading, anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So here again, the initial reader would be familiar of what's being quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 17, and that was, if there was any man or any woman who turned to other gods, then that person was put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was really harsh. The judgment was harsh. It was certain. Let's continue reading in verse 29 of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and then insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Then verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And as I mentioned previously, it amazes me how many there are more Bible teachers and pastors that will not talk about God's judgment. They will not talk about hell. They ignore it. They want happy messages and positive messages. And I'm all for being happy and being positive. I don't like to talk about hell and judgment, but it needs to be taught from the Word of God. Because you can do a study on how much Jesus talked about God's judgment, 
He talked about outer darkness. He talked about the gnashing of teeth. He talked about eternal lake of fire because it is real. And it is this word of God that tells us that we do not have to go there because we have hope. And our hope and provision is in Jesus. But those who reject the gospel, listen, hell is real. And the warning is given to us throughout the pages of God's word, not because God is angry and he is hateful, because he loves you. He loves you enough to set the record straight. He loves you enough to give you truth. And the truth is sin has come into the world. And it's pronounced death for us, every single one of us, because we've all been affected by sin. And the only hope of salvation was through his son who went to the cross and died in place of us and for us and for our sins, which the father gave willingly, which Jesus went willingly for the joy that was set before him, as we're going to read later on in this epistle. He endured the cross and despised the shame. He went for the joy that was before him, and the joy being you. He went to the cross to die for your sins that you may be forgiven and that you might have the hope of heaven and come into right relationship with the Father because of his joy for you and love for you. And anyone willingly rejects that, then sin will be judged. Notice verse 29. Let's draw attention to it again. It tells us that a person who rejects the truth of Jesus' sacrifice for us, number one, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, secondly, as we have read, that counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, thirdly, has insulted the Spirit of grace. What does that all mean? Well, trampled the Son of God underfoot is devaluing Jesus, devaluing him and who he is and what he did for us. Oh, that's not that important. So big deal, Jesus died on the cross. Second of all, the blood of the covenant, a common thing, the shedding of his blood, what you are saying in that is no greater importance than the countless animal sacrifices that were taken or for us today as we bring our sacrifice of good works. We bring our sacrifice of our own worthiness and works and trying to present that before God for forgiveness of sin, to be a good person, to be declared righteous for salvation. You've insulted the spirit of grace. They are rejecting the gospel that has been proclaimed to them. They've offended the Holy Spirit whose purpose is to present Jesus and his work for us. Even as Jesus said in John chapter 16, the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, he comes to testify of sin. That I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And he testifies of me. And that's why it's told to us in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is fearful or should be for the one who has rejected Jesus and offended God who one day will stand before him. And that is real as we read Revelation chapter 20 that there's going to be a day at the end of the ages that the unrighteous dead are going to be resurrected. It's called the second resurrection. And they will stand before the great white throne of God and they will be judged according to their works. Listen, you don't want to be judged according to your works because all of our works are as filthy rags as Isaiah declares. That we cannot present our works alone to God and say, I deserve to be in heaven. 
Jesus took the judgment for you and for me on Calvary's cross. And as he did that, and as we come to him in faith, that is what brings salvation. You and I will not be at the great white throne judgment, but those who have rejected the gospel will. And it tells us, and it is real, and it's very sobering to us, that they will be sentenced to outer darkness for all eternity. That is something that's going to take place. So what does it mean for us? Well, listen, for us as Christians, we never want to present people or tell people that there is eternal hope apart from Jesus. Please don't ever go there. Do not tell loved ones and, and co-workers and family, well, whatever you believe is fine. God loves us all. We'll all end up in bliss together in heaven together. Don't go there. And for anybody who might be here or listening, listen, if you have not come to Jesus Christ, I plead with you. Because it's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. Will you give your heart and your life to Jesus, surrender to him? Because he's real. And his death on the cross was sufficient for forgiveness of sin. And he rose from the grave. He's alive. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and the invitation is always to come. He says, come to me, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you do that? We're going to give you opportunity to do that. But we see that God's judgment is real, and it will take place if you reject that sacrifice that he made for you on the Calvary's cross. Well, let's continue reading verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions uh, of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So we see that after the writer here gives these warnings throughout the epistle, then he encourages the reader. He did that in chapter 6. You remember the passages about falling away? And then he goes on, he says, But beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. And here he begins to give them this encouragement that they needed and which we need as well, especially in the days in which we were living in. Remember or literal, literally recall the former days, all that you have endured for Jesus. They had gone through sufferings and persecution for their faith in Jesus. They were made spectacles both by reproaches, which means they were put down very heavily. If you were a Jew in that day and you converted to Christianity, your family had a funeral for you. You were considered dead. They would not talk to you. Your relationship with other Jews was broken, severed. They would go through tribulations, persecution. We know in Acts chapter 8 that it was Saul who caused havoc on the church as he began to heavily persecute the Christians there in Jerusalem. And that word havoc means that like a wild animal going after, you know, uh, blood, a shark going after blood. He went and he was dragging them out of their homes and putting them in prison and having them be put to death. So much so that the persecution spread the Christians out throughout Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. 
They had to pack up their stuff and they had to go. Can you imagine that? We have brothers and sisters today in different parts of the world that are very heavily persecuted. We haven't experienced that in our nation. There, can you imagine having to load up your stuff what you can and move somewhere and leave everything because of persecution? But Jesus said, don't fear those things which you are about to, to suffer, and you will have tribulation, as he was talking to the church at Smyrna. So be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Again, can you imagine that Jesus writes a letter to you and says, you're going to be persecuted. Uh, you're about to suffer, be put to death, but don't worry, you're going to have the crown of life. They would come in in certain parts of the empire and take your possessions is what they would do. He mentions that, and, and this was really happening. They plundered their goods, and, and here the writer is speaking of the compassion that they had towards him as he was in chains, and that's why there are those who believe that this was Paul the Apostle. So they were greatly mistreated for their faith in Jesus. They had endured with great struggle with sufferings, and the people that they loved, their brethren, were going through it as well, and they had to endure, and they needed at this time all of them to be exhorted and encouraged in their faith to keep going. It was the same when Peter wrote his epistle to the church, the general epistle, about this same time. He's encouraging them. He's speaking about their persecution that they're going through. They take your possessions, okay, but don't cast away your confidence that you have an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That is, you have a great reward that awaits you, and it's eternal. I know that there are some of you, and, and some that have passed through the services this morning, that have faced some difficult things in their life because they were Christian. Maybe it was financial, economically, because they didn't get that promotion. They were fired. They made it so miserable for you at work that you ended up having to leave. You've lost relationships with families and friends. They've been severed and strained. Uh, they don't want to be around you. We even know those whose spouses left them because they were a reproach because they loved Jesus and the tribulations that they've gone through. And what can happen is you begin to think, is it worth it? And why, Lord? And we need to remember the things that the Lord has told us as Christians that Jesus said, you will have tribulation, little t, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And that those who live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote, will suffer persecution. And Jesus also would say that the world's going to hate you because the world first hated me. I think that sometimes Christians think if they come to the Lord that that's kind of a cool thing. Maybe it's cool, but the world doesn't see it as being cool. The world's going to come at us more. And I personally believe this is my opinion. I pray for a revival. I pray for a great awakening in this community, in this state, in this nation. I believe that's our only hope as a nation. In the direction that we are going. Getting further and further away from the Lord. I see it coming that it very well could be more persecution for us in the days in which we're living as we get closer to the return of the Lord. So what is it that we're going to do? Are we going to continue to stand for truth and for righteousness? They tell us not to speak the name of Jesus. They tell us not to tell people that there's sinful lifestyles that they're living in. 
They tell us that we are not to stand for purity and, and for righteousness, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And this exhortation is given to us, don't give up. And the ironic thing is the Bible says that you and I, we really don't have anything to fear. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and the soul. You fear God who can kill both body and soul. The ones that are to be fearful, the ones that are rejecting the gospel. And understand that this is the worst that it gets. It is only temporary. Heaven awaits great rewards and a heavenly inheritance. And it is eternal. And those who are of this world and love this world, it is temporary. And this is as good as it gets for them, which isn't all that good. And if they do not turn and surrender their lives to Jesus, then it is eternal judgment that will last forever. So we're to keep a proper perspective in an eternal perspective. Folks, listen, that's why we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Because it could very well get worse, and we need each other. And we need to encourage each other. You need to pray for your pastor. Go on the radio, on live radio, and you realize how there are those who hate the gospel and how difficult it can be. But I believe that pastors really have a decision to make whether they're going to stay true to the Word of God or they're going to compromise it. And unfortunately, there are more that are compromising the Word of God. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that you've endured the past difficult times, so keep going. And you're going to make it through the present time of discouragement by keeping your eyes on heaven as you consider Jesus in every situation. In verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't cast away your confidence. Jesus, he, he is your hope. You have need to endure. So how was it that they were in to endure? Well, as we read this, it's been told to us. Number one, draw near with a true heart, a heart that loves God and, and desires to walk with Him. Hold fast the confession of your faith, as we've already seen, verse 23. Consider one another. Again, it means so much when somebody comes up and encourages you. Hey, keep going. Keep, keep living for the Lord. Isn't that great? That we have a place that we can come to and get away from the world and be encouraged with one another. Keep doing the things, and you're going to endure. And then Number four, there's rewards that await you that will last for eternity, verse 35. Great rewards. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, that God is not unjust to forget your works. That we all stand before what the believers, we're not going to stand at the great white throne judgment. We're going to stand at what? The Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ and be rewarded for what we have done for Christ. And then fifthly, verse 37, yet for a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. It's the third reference to the coming of the Lord. The first one is at the end of chapter 9, then verse 26, now verse 37. I love this. For the one who is coming will come, not that he might come. He's not going to tarry any longer when he does. And then number six, as we finish this morning, how is it that we endure? Let's finish in verses 38 and 39, that now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. The just shall live by the law, 
by dead works? By the old covenant? No. The just shall live by faith. It's faith in him. The one who has clearly been proclaimed as superior to anyone or any other religious system is trusting in him, living by that. The just shall live by faith. Now that was first quoted in what? The Old Testament book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. Then Paul borrows it as he writes to the Romans, the theme of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. And Paul's focus on Romans then is our faith that brings justification. It is not the law. And then he borrows it when he writes the book of Galatians in chapter 3, verse 11. The just shall live by faith. Paul's focus is on just. That justification comes by faith in him, not by the law. And now it's emphasized in the book of Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. And the focus is on to live. Just living by faith in him. Don't go back to that which cannot save you the sacrifices which cannot bring forgiveness of sin. Live for him, and your faith is in him, to one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and is true for you and for me. The just shall live by faith. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this, this incredible epistle that has been written to us to make it so clear to, to all of us that Jesus is our salvation and forgiveness. So, Lord, as we get ready to come to the communion table, as we hold the elements, remembering what Jesus did for us, the communion time is for the believer. So I want to pray if there's anyone here, or maybe you're listening to us, that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that the gospel has been presented to you, that Jesus went to the cross and died for you because we have all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And he did the work of making atonement for your sin and my sin. And he was put into a tomb, and he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is your salvation. There's no other sacrifice for sin. There's no other means to the Father. There's no other way for forgiveness and salvation. It is in faith in Jesus. Will you come? He loves you. And that's why he came for you. That's why he died for you. And it is you now making that choice that I need to be forgiven of sin and call out in the name of the Lord and surrender all to him. And if that's you, will you pray? Right where you are, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner, and now I ask for your forgiveness, Jesus, because you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you're alive, sitting on the throne, and I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my heart and my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I believe in you. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and forgiving me and for salvation. And I want to walk with you and I want to live for you. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I want to know you. Thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And as we end the service here, we're going to have a ministry team up here. If you made that decision for him, will you come up and tell him the decision you made? Because we want to bless you. But right now, as the communion elements are being passed out, hang on to them. We'll partake of them together. May this be a time of just worship. Just again, just at awe and wonder of this new covenant that we belong to based on the death and provision of Jesus Christ and going to the cross.